So let's take our Bibles tonight and open to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I want to look at a topic in the next several weeks of our sanctification. And yes, I have covered this before, but I believe it's something we need to be reminded of continually that we are to be more Christ-like throughout our Christian life. Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, if you're there, we'll read just this one verse. We'll go ahead and read verse 28 with it. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He did foreknow... He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. God predestined you, Christian, from the moment of salvation to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Isn't that a wonderful thing? He predestined that, that that is his goal for you and for me that day by day we will look more like his dear son, Jesus Christ. That we will have more of Christ in us and less of self, that when others see us, they see Christ in me. What a privilege we have, but what a responsibility also to continue to grow in him day by day. Because that's the will of God for each of us, is to be more Christ-like. Now, That's not just in our actions, but that's in our thoughts, in the way we handle situations. Every aspect of our life is to be more like Christ. So as we start this looking at the sanctification, tonight's message I've entitled, Changed into the Image of Christ. But I want us to start with the definition of what is sanctification, because this process is called sanctification, becoming changed more in the image of Christ. So Webster defines sanctification these two ways. He says, an act of consecrating or setting apart for a sacred purpose. So when I was saved, was I set apart for a sacred purpose? Yes. And now that I am set apart for a sacred service, then should I not grow more like my Savior day by day? The answer is yes. So we've been set apart. Now, it's interesting as we get into this, we'll see that different things sometimes are set apart for certain use, right? They're sanctified for that use, okay? Uh, like the temple and things of that nature were set apart for God's use. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But the second definition is a person, place, or thing set apart from evil to God for his use. So it's kind of similar, but it's specifically talking about a person, place, or thing being set apart for God. So the first one is the act of consecrating or set apart. So that means it's sanctified, it's set apart, the act of doing so. And the second one then is the thing that is set apart is now sanctified. In the Old Testament, the firstborn of Israel were sanctified. As Exodus 3.12, rather, Sanctify unto me all the firstborn, whatsoever openeth the womb of the children of Israel, both man and beast, it is mine. Now, there was a redemption process for the children. You did not kill off the firstborn. But if they were clean animals, what was to happen with the firstborn? 
it was given to God. It was a sacrifice, right? Many times, unclean animals were also redeemed, and, and it's a whole series of laws that God gave in the Old Testament. But the principle that he's teaching is that the first is set aside for me. Was not the same principle taught throughout the entire Old and New Testament that the first fruits belong to God. When they went to conquer the land, the first city they came to was Jericho. And what did God tell them about the spoils of Jericho? It belongs to me, he said. Now, after that, he let the Israelites keep the spoil of all the cities, but the first belonged to him. And another law that they had said when they were planting a field that the first fruits belonged to God. And you and I need to understand the first, the best, belongs to God. But here's the mentality many have adopted. I'm going to do my thing I'm going to go have my fun. I'm going to do my work. I'm going to do my, 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 me, me, me. And then if there's anything left over, I'll give it to God. That is totally backwards of what God has said he desires of us. He wants the first, and then we keep the leftovers. Don't give, take first and give God the leftovers. We see the, sac- uh, the tabernacle was sanctified by God's glory, Exodus 29, 43, and there I will meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my, th- my glory. So the tabernacle had a very specific purpose. It's where God met with man, and we see it, if you will, illustrated or personified in that God w- was leading them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, right? But then when they set up the tabernacle and everything was, uh, all the campment was set up, then what would happen? The pillar of fire, or pillar of cloud rather, the fire would come down upon the rest on the mercy seat, right? Until God was ready for them to move and then it would come up off the mercy seat and then they would move and follow it. You remember all that? Okay. Now the tabernacle was not a meeting place. It was not a place of going to get a meal. It was not a place of leisure. It was a sanctified place that was designed for the sacrifice and worship of God, and that was its purpose. It was set apart for that specific use. And God took it serious, every aspect of the details that he gave for the tabernacle to where when Aaron's two sons didn't do it God's way, what did God do? He killed him. So that puts a value then on what God says is sanctified, that we need to treat it the way God wants it to be treated. The altar and the priest were sanctified. Exodus 29, verse 44, and I will sanctify the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, and I will sanctify also both Aaron and his sons to minister to me in the priest's office. The children of Israel were to be sanctified. Leviticus 20, verse 7, Sanctify yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I I am the Lord your God. Be ye holy, we're told in the New Testament, for I am holy. Again, that being sanctified, set apart. Several times we see the word used in the New Testament, and this is not an exhaustive list. This is just kind of giving us an idea of how it's used in Scripture. We see in John 17, 19, Jesus sanctifies himself. It says, and for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they might 
they also might be sanctified through the truth. Now that's interesting. God coming to flesh says, I sanctify myself. I set myself apart for the Father's use that we could also be sanctified. And then we see in Ephesians 5, 26, that the church is to be sanctified. It says that he might sanctify and cleanse it, referring to the church, with the washing of water by the word. Now, that's not the church building, although it should be treated with respect, for it is where we meet God. But it's the individuals of the church. The church is the individuals, the people of the church, right? Although the things of God should be treated with a reverence and respect, should they not? When we come to hear and meet, we come with a respect and reverence. And while we understand that, you know, um, <clears throat> it's not like the tabernacle, we do still have a respect for the things here because we call this God's house. And these, the things in this building do belong to God, right? And so there should be a respect and reverence for it. And kind of like, I'm going to probably get in trouble for this, but I'm going to tell a story about my wife. She said when she was a little girl, they were singing the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. Well, she was a very little girl, and so she thought the song meant to be taken literally. So when it says, I stand alone on the Word of God, she says she stuck her Bible in the floor, and she stood on it because that's what it said to do. And her teacher got very upset because you don't stand on your Bible. Now, I don't know how the whole thing got rectified because I was too busy laughing when she got to this point of the story. But the point being is that we need to show a respect for God's word. Now, I don't think she meant disrespect as a little girl, okay? She was just taking it very literally. So be careful if you teach young people to help them understand before you have young people standing on top of their Bibles because you told them to, all right? So just beware of that. She changed the words of the song. That's right, you did tell me that. So let's look then. We see sanctification is taught throughout Scripture. Let's look then. When it applies to us as Christians, what are the three parts of sanctification? There is what's called the past or positional sanctification, and that is when I experienced freedom from the penalty of sin. When I was saved, I have been freed from the penalty of sin. Why? Because my sin was placed upon Christ and the righteousness of Christ was imputed to my account so that when the God the Father sees me, he sees me as righteous as Jesus Christ. Now think of that. You know who you are. You know your sin. But when God the Father sees you, because you have been sanctified... He sees you as righteous as Jesus Christ. This happened at the moment of salvation. As soon as you trusted Christ as Savior, 1 Corinthians 6.11, as such were some of you, but you are washed, but you are sanctified, but you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of God. So if you ever take the time, and I know you're, most of you are familiar with it, but go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and look at the verses prior, what Paul is saying, and he has this long list of sins, and he says, such were some of you. Aren't you glad what you were before you saved is not what you are today? 
Now, if you were saved at a young age, if you had the privilege of being saved at a young age, then thank God you were saved from experiencing the, the wickedness of this world. But it's a one-time event. When I was saved, I am, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to me. It's a one-time event, and God sees me as righteous. Hold your place here. Let's turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, verse 10. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily, ministering and often offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he'd offered one sacrifice for sins, forever sat down at the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Perfected forever them that are sanctified. That's beautiful words, isn't it? Perfected forever through Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians 5.21 tells us, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus Christ took my sin upon him at the cross at Calvary that, at, that, that, so that God could impute the righteousness of Christ to my account. And Romans chapter 4 talks about the imputation of the righteousness of Christ and let's go ahead, since you're in Romans 9, let's just flip back a few pages to Romans chapter 4, and let's look at what Paul writes here in these pages. Romans chapter 4, starting at verse 17. In Romans 4 and verse 17, as is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before whom, before him whom ye believed, even God who quickened the dead and called those things which are not as though they were who against hope believed in hope, that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which is spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body, now dead, when he is about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able to perform, and therefore was imputed to him for righteousness, now it is written for his, not for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. So God is saying when Abraham believed God, it was imputed to him for righteousness. In the same way, when you and I trust Jesus Christ as our Savior, God says he imputes the righteousness of Christ to us. That was a one-time transaction, once for all, completed. That was in the past. That is my position. But then we have, secondly, the present, or we call it the practical, or some call it the progressive, not the worldly progressive, but the progressive sanctification. And this is freedom from the power of sin. Now remember, I am freed from the, I'm freed from the penalty of sin at salvation. I am freed from the power of sin as I yield to the Holy Spirit of God and allow Him to control me. This is the part that we're going to spend most of our time talking about. This is the being conformed to the image of Christ. 
Now, this lasts from the moment of salvation because, yes, while at that moment, in my position, God saw me as righteous as Jesus Christ, I wasn't then and I'm not now there, right? But here's the idea. I should be growing more like Christ day by day. As I'm walking with him, I should be growing more like him, being changed so that the longer I walk with Christ, the more like Christ I should be. That is our progressive or practical sanctification. Now, I understand people grow at different rates, just like children grow at different rates, right? Sometimes, you know, you get the child who's 13 and you think that they're really much older, or they're 18 and they still haven't grown up yet. You know, in different times, different rates at which people grow. Some people stop growing way down here. Others grow way, you know, tall. Some keep growing this way, some of us. But we all understand that people grow at different rates, right? But the truth is, is there should be change. If there's no change in you now, Then before you were saved, and I ask why, why are you not growing? There should be growth. Now, a new Christian, to act like a new Christian, is no different than a new baby acting like a new baby, right? My niece and nephew had a new baby. Shannon got to go see the baby. I have not yet, but they had a new baby. And, you know, my nephew, Justin, from my understanding, still has yet to change his first diaper because he can't supposedly stand it. But anyhow, she makes messes. You know why? Because she's a baby, right? I'm sure she cries a lot. She wants to be fed. She does all the things that babies do. But, you know, the good news for young mamas who are struggling with babies not sleeping all night and having to feed them every two hours and all the other things that went along with a new baby is that they're going to grow up and things are going to change, right? So my baby back here, he's going to slap me later. I don't have to do anything for him anymore. He does it all on his own, right? He's an adult now. That took a process of growth for him to get there. It didn't happen overnight. So I understand growing more Christ-like is a process that will continue to happen. But the problem is, is so many make excuses. Well, you know, I just, I I don't know. I don't, I haven't had time. I haven't studied. Or, you know, well, I don't think going to church is important. And why do I always preach this on Wednesdays? I need to be probably preaching on Sunday of, you know, well, I don't have time to study my Bible. I don't have time to pray. What do you mean you don't have time? Is not your growth important? Oh, I don't have time to eat today. I don't have time to wash my clothes today. What are you talking about? I mean, you make time for what's important. But this happens then from the moment of salvation till the rapture or until natural death. We're hoping for the rapture, right? But it happens that whole time we are to be growing. Growing more Christ-like day by day. God works through us as we yield to him. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. 
So, Lord willing, as we go through this, we're going to develop these verses and others that talk about sanctification further, but basically we are to be a living sacrifice. Now, that's different than the sacrifice of the Old Testament because what did you do with them? You killed them. But we're a living sacrifice, offering ourselves to God, saying, God, this is all I have to offer you. What you've given me, me, I offer to you as a sacrifice. But the problem with being a living sacrifice and the fact that we still have the old nature is that we, st- we want to get off the altar sometimes and take charge again. But we've got to yield ourselves to God, allow him to have control, and not be conformed to this world. I'm actually looking very, uh, forward to this <clears throat> new Sunday school series of looking through at life through a biblical viewpoint because all these cultural issues, Christian, God has answers to in his word. We've got to look at it through the lens of scripture and not the world. Stop being conformed to the world. You know what conforms to things? Jello. You take jello and you pour it in a mold and stick it in the refrigerator and what's going to happen? It's going to hold that shape. It conforms to whatever you put it in, doesn't it? But it says that we're to be transformed. And the Greek word that is translated transformed is the same word from which we get the word metamorphosis, that ugly caterpillar turning into a beautiful butterfly. You know, I don't think God did that by accident as a beautiful illustration of what sanctification is all about. Because we're to be transformed from the old man to the image of Christ. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 Wherefore, seeing we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, is set down at the right hand at the throne of God. So Lord willing, over the next several weeks, we will take more time, and that's where we're going to spend our time in the understanding of the practical or progressive sanctification because that's the one we need to be working on you see the past is already done the present one we're working on and the future one will happen and yes there is a third aspect the future or the perfected and that is the freedom from the presence of sin the freedom from the presence of sin this will happen at the rapture when our positional and our practical become equal, when we put off this mortal and put on immortality, when we put off this carnal, carnal and we put on the immortal, you know, we, we, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul talks about the rapture. And let's look at a few verses here. 51 and, and 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51, Paul writes, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the same that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, Where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting 
of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye you know your labor is not in vain in the Lord. One of these days, my practical and my positional are going to be the same in that perfected state. When I finally get rid of the old man, when I finally put on incorruption, when I put on immortality, I'm going to be standing before God righteous. But you know, it still won't be my righteousness. It'll be the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The same righteousness that was imputed to my account at the day of salvation will be perfected in me when sin is eradicated. Isn't that wonderful? So the first one, I didn't do anything about it because God did all the work, right? The future one, I don't do anything about because God does all the work. The middle one, God still does all the work. I have to submit in order for the work to happen. So all the work is done by God, but this middle one now, this one in which I live, the present or the practical sanctification is a process that I allow God to change me into the image of Christ. Because can I, in my own power, change myself in Christ's image? No, obviously. It is still God's working in me, but God is not going to force me. He's going to, as I yield to him, then the change will happen. So sanctification, then has a purpose. It is us being changed into the image of Christ. Let's go back to Romans 9, where we started. And yes, when you go full circle, that means you, Romans 8, rather. I don't know why I said Romans 9. <clears throat> when you go full circle, that means, yes, we're getting close to the end. The purpose of sanctification. Verse 29, For whom he did foreknow... He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. This is the will of God. It says he predestinated us. He predetermined that a Christian is to be Christ-like. Now we live in a world of nobody wants to offend anybody, and so everything's relative, and we really got to be careful what we say, how we do. And, and, and there is some truth of how we present the gospel. And is, you know, we don't want to be offensive as the messenger, but the message is going to offend some, right? And we can't change the message and water it down and change it just because the world doesn't like it. Nor should I try to be more like the world just because they don't like me being different from them. But that's where I believe many Christians find themselves is how close can I get to the world and still be okay? Well, you're asking the wrong question. Because why in the world do you want to get close to the world? We are to be different than the world. And does it really matter what everybody thinks of you? I'll tell you what matters is what God knows of you and we're going to give an account to Jesus Christ someday, and that's going to matter a whole lot more than what the people of this world think of you today. 
God has predetermined that we are to be changed into Christ's image. Jesus Christ, when he was here on earth, went about doing good. And yet the world hated him and the world crucified him. So it seems like many Christians today say, well, I don't want to be persecuted. I don't want to deal with people not liking me. I don't want to deal with all these things. So I will just live as close as I can to the world. And I'm not going to show them that I'm different. I don't want them to make fun of me. Let me ask a question. When you think of all that Jesus suffered for you, how much sense does it make to say, I'm not willing to stand for him? Let's look at a few other terms that relate to our practical sanctification in closing. First of all, I'd like us to turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, Paul writes, Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, for if that I might apprehend, for if that I may apprehend, that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I'm in a race, and I'm pressing for the mark. Now, I never was one for doing much running. My theory always was, why are we running? Nobody's chasing us. But had to do some running. But when you're running, you're pressing for the mark. Well, what is the mark, Christian, that you and I are pressing for? Christ-likeness. That's the goal. It's not about how many people like me. It's not about how much money I can make. It's not about how many things I have. It's not about having fun. It's not about pleasure. It's about being Christ-like ought to be the goal of every one of our lives. The mark that I keep my eyes on is Christ. Christ alone. I want to be like Christ. That was Paul's aim. But too often, we get distracted with the things of this world. You know, there are those that live with no goal or no aim. And you're certainly, if you're aiming for nothing, you're going to hit it every time. There are those that are aiming for what this world can give them. I have met people whose entire life is about gaining material things. And they are later in their years and completely miserable because the things didn't bring the pleasure they thought they would bring. I have met people who thought that the pleasure would be in women and wine and all these things, and their lives are all messed up. Christian, the goal is Jesus Christ. Then one more, and this will go what Peter has to say in 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. I want you to think about this. Who's writing this? Peter. When we think of Peter, we often think of the fishermen who Christ said, I'll make you fishers of men. But then as he's following Christ, Peter loved the taste of shoe leather. He always had his foot in his mouth. Lord, not me. Lord, don't, it's not going to happen to you. Lord, don't wash just my feet. Wash my whole body. 
And, you know, you see over and over and over and over again, Peter's the one opening mouth, inserting foot. Although, while we pick on Peter for all that, who's the only disciple that ever got out of the boat? And who's the only other one besides Jesus Christ himself who walked on water? That would be Peter. So there was something to his rambunctious attitude. But then you remember at the Last Supper, Peter being told that he's going to deny Christ three times. And of course, as Jesus is going through his trials, Peter does exactly that. He goes out, he weeps bitterly. And what do we find Peter later doing? Telling the other disciples, I'm going to go back to fishing. Because Peter's a defeated Peter, wasn't he? And Jesus has that conversation with him by the seashore, saying, Peter, do you love me? Feed my lambs, feed my sheep. And then that same Peter, we find on the day of Pentecost, preaching one of the most powerful messages ever preached in this earth. Now, did Peter still struggle? Well, yes, because you know he and Paul had some issues later and whatnot. But we find a different Peter who was empowered by the Holy Spirit, a totally changed man from what he was before, don't we? Now, it's that man who writes these words that we're going to look at here in conclusion. Let's look at verse 17. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware, lest ye also be led away with the air of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be both glory now and forever. Amen. It's interesting, God used Peter to write the words, but grow in grace. Because what was Peter lacking? Grace. Lord, I'm going to be with you. I don't know about the rest of these clowns, but I'm going to be still following you. He needed some grace. But Peter grew in grace, did he not? And that same grace in which Peter grew, you and I can grow and be more Christ-like. Tradition tells us that when it came Peter's time to die, he was going to be crucified, but he felt so unworthy to be crucified that he requested to be crucified upside down because he did not deserve the same death that his Lord experienced. That's what, my point of that is this. He was a changed man. Why? Because he was sanctified. He had become more like Christ. He finally got his eyes off of Peter. He got his eyes off of John because did he not even ask Jesus, what about this man? What's going to happen with him? And Christ tells him, what happens to him doesn't matter to you, Peter. You do what I told you to do. Peter finally got it right, and Peter focused on Christ. And at the end of Peter's life, we find a totally different Peter than we read about in the Gospels. God wants to do the same thing in your life and in mine but we have to submit to him and allow him to change us, to sanctify us, to make us more in the image of Jesus Christ. So Lord willing, over the next several weeks, we're going to talk about this sanctification and how we can be changed into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us pray.